Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Mike Cordes. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. On this episode, Rock and Mike pick the album we're going to discuss, and he chose Motley Crue's 1981 debut album, Too Fast for Love. So, Mike, tell us about your history with Motley Crue and the first record. So I come into Motley Crue on Theater of Pain. I was in, I was down in Cape Cod, Massachusetts with a buddy of mine, and we were watching MTV. We didn't have it at home because we lived in the sticks, and uh, saw the video for Smoking in the Boys' Room. Went out, and it was one of the first albums I ever bought. And then went back and, you know, Shout and Too Fast for Love, and I had those by the time Girls, Girls, Girls came out. So went forward with that. All right. I covered the Motley album Shout at the Devil quite a while ago, and I said then that I discovered the band through the video for Too Young to Fall in Love, and I kind of saw them as Next Generation Kiss, musically and image-wise, which was right up my alley. I got Shout at the Devil cassette soon after, and I was a big crew fan right away. A short time later, I was looking through the cassettes at Tape World. I think that's what it's showing you. <laughs> Tape World, yeah. yeah. Remember, that? remember that? And I stumbled across another Motley Crue album. I didn't even know they had one. The spying just said Motley Crue, nothing else. So this had to be around 1984 or so. And I bought Too Fast for Love and took it home not knowing really what it was. When I played it, I didn't like it at first because it didn't sound like Shout at the Devil. And I thought, I was like, what the fuck? Why does it sound like this? But I stuck with it, and then I learned it was the first album, and it's actually titled Too Fast for Love, and then we'll go from there. So here are some basic facts about the album, as far as Wikipedia can tell me. Too Fast for Love is a debut studio album by American heavy metal band Motley Crue, released on November 10th, 1981 on Leather Records, and later remixed and re-released on August 20th, 1982 by Elektra Records. It was produced by Motley Crue and was recorded in October 1981 at Hit City West, Los Angeles, California. It reached number 77 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and a certified platinum by the RIAA. Next, I'll give you the band's lineup card. We've got Vince Neil on lead vocals, Mick Mars on guitar and backing vocals, Nikki Six on bass, Tommy Lee on drums and backing vocals. And we're going to be reviewing the Electra version of the album because it's the one that I own and know. So Rock and Mike, let's do a track-by-track analysis of this album. The first track is Live Wire, written by Nikki Six. Rock and Mike, what do you think about this? Balls out rocker that opens with that iconic riff and those fucking drums. This, now, this song for me, this song, it's the grime. It's a grimy song. And there's been a few times in previous episodes where I've said that I like a particular riff, but it needs to be grimier. I think I said that a lot with Warrant. And this is why. This song really painted that for me, and that's that's the influence of this song on, on my ears. And it just set the standard for me. The drum sound, we're going to hear it again as it goes off. It's really red hot. Yeah. Later on Shout at the Devil, you just hear that, those the 
I guess it's floor toms and bass drums that he's really going off on. And that drives the entire sound. And the other thing that's cool about this, there's a lot of space and it makes it so effective. The band stops during the pre-chorus at about 36 seconds. He says a little bit better than it used to be. And it jumps right back in. And when he says that line, it's punctuated by the drums because I'm alive. And then it just, it, it goes in. It's sheer perfection. And we haven't even gotten to the breakdown. There's that little bit of phase on the on the guitar, and then Tommy carries the band through with his cymbal work and cowbell. Cowbell, baby. Cowbell. And then Vince, they, you know, then you get the Vince scream that we'll never, ever hear live again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's <not> like, no. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's funny. I, I've got some friends that play in a cover band, and they do this song, and their singer can't hit this note. Yeah. The guitar player does. Oh wow! Okay, so yeah, but so but he can do it, and then you get that riff broken up with the cymbal. Maybe grabs. that's what Motley needs to do. Maybe they're going to get Mick to do it. <laughs> you mean the Dollar General's <laughs> version of Blackie Lawless? Yeah, um, yeah. he just—he always—I don't know—he just—he he always looked out of place in this era. Um, but the and then you get the, the like I said the the cymbal grabs and the cowbell, and surprisingly, no solo. Mm. I don't I don't care. The song is awesome. Yeah. So Motley Crue announces their arrival with that raw, in-your-face riff. I love Mick Mars' early guitar tone, that aggressive chainsaw sound. In a lot of ways, Mick owns this album. His riffs really dominate the sound. Tommy Lee shows he can drive a tune with his pounding drums, and he's a great proponent of the cowbell, and that's <laughs> okay with me, baby. <laughs> Nicky Six is famously not much of a bass player. He's mostly a root note guy, but as a songwriter, his contributions are invaluable to this band. Vince Neil, he's not a great singer, especially live, but on record for this band and this sound, he's perfect. His high voice is clear, though occasionally gets a little whiny, and damn, sometimes it's hard for me to understand what he's singing. He can certainly mushmouth a lyric. Speaking of lyrics, these are basically about a badass walking the street, young and full of energy. He's not afraid to use his fist to get what he wants, and watch out, ladies, he likes it a little rough. You could even see the second verse is kind of rapey. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> the chorus is a shout-along standout. That's what this band mostly does with its choruses, and I want to get something out of the way here. Motley Crue has always been a pop rock or pop metal band to me. Their sound is influenced by 70s hard rock, from Aerosmith to Kiss to Alice Cooper. They're not punk. Even when they cover punk songs, it sounds like a hard rock band doing a punk cover, and I don't like their punk covers, actually. Their songs have pop structures and pop hooks, so they always had their eye on commercial success as far as I'm concerned. This is one of the crew's great tracks. It's always in their set list, and it deserves to be, and it sets the tone for this band from here on out. This was the original second single off the album. The next track is Come On and Dance, written by Nikki Six. Mike, what do you think? All right, so this one's got a slower riff that has a hard time getting out of its own way at first. Um, And then the drums come in and they build that riff when uh, Vince comes in with the first verse. Now, when I first heard this, I remember thinking how the come on and dance was (laughs) 
weird and awkward. And now it might over the years, I've listened to this thousands of times. It's completely endears me to the song. Um, and the cowbell serves as an alarm. It's kind of like, here comes the weird chorus. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. It really does. Every single time. It's like yeah. an alarm. Um, I like, <laughs> I, I like Vince's cadence on the verse deliveries. It is a weak solo, however, um, but it, and it comes with Tommy's ignore the solo. Here's more cowbell. Um, <laughs> it's throughout that solo. And then two minutes and 25 seconds in, this goes back to what you were saying on Livewire, how you can mush mouth vocals. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck is he doing? Yeah, I don't know. Come on, it's like, what the fuck was that? Um, I do like the start and stop at the end with the come on and dance and then how it goes right into the next track. Yeah. I like that part. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and uh, it's a good tune. I like it. Yeah, it's another good riff. Maybe not as tough as Livewire, but I still dig it. And the band comes in on a mid-tempo thumper that doesn't lose the momentum from the first track. More Cowbell Tommy, like we've been saying, a boy. And I dig the start and stop breakdown section that lets Mick Solo a little, kind of gets his feet wet. Like you said, it's not a br- it's, it's nothing great, but, you know, at least we're hearing it for the first time. The lyrics are about doing the old horizontal dance. Vince praises his cool and clean leather tees. When she's on top, well, you can't be stopped. Watch her scream, watch her suck you clean. Deep words, baby. Vince lets out some high screams that are actually pretty funny. We've already covered that. And there's a high voice in the chorus that you also mentioned, Mike. Yep. It just sticks out like a sore thumb, and it makes me chuckle. Like you said, over the years, I've gotten used to it, and you know, I'm, I'm waiting for it now. I love that alarm clock with the cowbell. It's perfect. It's a downgrade from Livewire, but I still like this. The following track is Public Enemy Number 1, written by Nikki Six and Lizzie Gray. Rock and Mike, what do you say? So this one um, opens up with Mick playing the melody uh, line, and it's a mid-tempo track, but this song, I'm sorry, Nikki, you're not punk. This is pure power pop. That's exactly what it is. I don't care. I like it. It's got a, that simple bass line, poppy chorus, you know, that whole public enemy number one. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's pop, and it's... Yeah. Uh, the solo's good. It's really the first proper solo we've heard on uh, on this record. And then back to the chorus, you got cowbell and hand claps, which I don't know too many punk bands with hand claps. <laughs> um, and, but this is completely where Nikki Six's influences show. Um, on the 2003 reissue, Too Fast for Love included a cover of the Raspberries tonight. Yeah. Um, so Raspberries, it, you know that, that famous punk band. That famous punk band, the yeah. Raspberries, featuring... Uh, Eric Carmen, not Eric Cartman. Eric Carmen, who had a number four hit with Hungry Eyes off the Dirty da- Dancing soundtrack. <laughs> so yeah, that punk Eric Carmen. Yes. <laughs> so um, and uh, but one of the cool things too with me with Motley, Motley always holds a special place. But I got into a lot of stuff that they listened to by reading interviews. Sure. So you know when they would talk about you know the Raspberries or you know Nikki Six would talk about seeing Rush in Seattle or seeing Queen. Bowie, Vince Neil would talk about Judas Priest, Nikki Six would talk about Aerosmith, Mick Mars would talk about 10 years after, and Jeff Beck. I listened to all those bands 
solely based on the interviews. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, and this song right here, this just is a nod to all of all that power pop that he likes. Sure. So Lizzie Gray, rest in peace, was in the band's sister with Nikki and Blackie Lawless, and also laid around with Nikki in London. So I'm kind of guessing this track is an older one. I don't know that for a fact. It starts with a repetitive riff that Mick plays the melody over the top of. You said that, Mike. And it leads to a verse that has a little bit of a gallop to it. I dig the pre-chorus where Vince sings, Do you know how it feels to be wanted? And whoa, Nikki varies his bass line just a touch. <laughs> Tommy drum rolls the tune into the chorus, and Nikki continues to play a semi-walking bass line that fits with a riff. All right. Mick gets a true double-tracked solo spot, and he fills it with notes. It's busy and doesn't leave much room to breathe. Lyrically, it seems to be about a couple of criminals on the run from the law. It's implied they murdered someone, and it's got sort of a romanticized notion of killers on the lam. We just said this. I love the oh yeah, and the chorus is oh yeah, oh yeah. And Tommy gives me more cowbell in the breakdown section along with the punk hand claps. I dig the hey in between the riffs as yeah. the track closes, and this one's a winner for me. The next track is Merry Go Round, written by Nikki Six. Mike, what do you say? This is the first ballad with a dark backstory, and for the um, the first, this is the first crack in the armor for this album for me. It's not a bad first verse, but then it gets repe- as repetitive as running to the John after drunken Taco Bell. <laughs> it, it's like it's a decent solo, and then all of a sudden Vince gets pissed and starts amping up the volume of "Merry Go Round and Round." Because he's just so pissed at how many times he has to repeat that line over and over again. And if you get a chance to read the lyrics, they actually print out, Mary go round and round. Oh, I know. Mary go round and round. Mary, no fucking shit. You'll go blind. You're like, what the hell? I want to know who at Electra Records, when they picked up the leather copy of this, said, hey, we're going to take Stick to Your Guns off this album, but we're going to keep this piece of shit. Yeah, no shit. That just boggles my mind. And they both would have fit anyway. They didn't even have to cut it off. They just, for whatever reason, didn't like that track. If you're going to take one off the album, this was the one to take off. This is Mike's Unimpressed Fluffy Fuckery. We slow things down for this not-quite-ballad. The palm-muted riff is doubled by clean arpeggios, and it sounds cool with added cymbal washes from Tommy that provide atmosphere. Vince's vocals are restrained until the choruses, where they become super whiny. And after the 50th time he says, Mary, go round and round, I'm sick of hearing it, and I just want him to shut up, and he wants to shut up, apparently. Mick plays a good solo on this. It builds up and heightens the tension as it increases in speed. Then he lets the foot off the gas as it transforms into the melody of the chorus and releases the tension. It's well-constructed. It's the best part of the song by far. Nikki said the lyrics are about a neighbor of his from Seattle who was a young father and couldn't handle the family pressures. He slowly lost his grip on reality, and they ended up taking him away in a straitjacket. This is Miley's favorite track on the record, too. The chorus just gets to me. So this is... Aaron Stinky Stinker. The following track is Take Me to the Top, written by Nikki Six. 
Mike, let's have it. All right, they're back. And yeah. not in a we're going to do a final tour and come back in five years kind of we're back. Um, it's back to being a rocker with a decent riff, some chugging rhythm. Uh, guitar pro- uh, obviously provided by Mick before we get some phase and Vince with that melodic verse. The chorus gets close to merry-go-round repetition before Mick solo. And we hear Nikki with a solid bass line for the song. When I was younger, that I had that same version of Too Fast for Love on cassette where it just said Motley Crue. Yes. And there was no lyrics in it. Right. So I always yeah. thought he was taking saying, take me to the top and blow me. Take me to the top and blow me. Take yeah. me to the top. So I just assumed it was a sex song. Um, it wasn't until later I got Too Fast for Love on vinyl through Columbia House. And All right. it came with the lyrics and found out that's not what he was saying. I was kind of disappointed. Um, but it is one of my favorites off this album. Tommy Drum rolls us back to a fast, aggressive rocker. Mixed tone really shines on the fast numbers, but I also love the way the tempo slows and the riff crests and drops like a wave before the verse starts. You know, that. Yeah, that, I, yeah. That, that's, what I, that's what I was trying to say. Nikki occasionally throws in these little bass flourishes that come out of nowhere and sound cool. The lyrics this time are vague, but they're certainly dark. Is the guy a street tough getting into a black-hearted alley fight? Is he the same rapey dude from Livewire saying too many times victim accusation? I'm not sure, but the mood of the words fits the music. The chorus is again repeating the song title with additional screams over the top, but Vince's voice isn't annoying like the last track. Not as annoying, I guess. Mick is hitting his stride with his solos. It starts off melodic and develops into busy note flurries. Then he brings it back before he finishes. I also had no idea exactly what Vince is saying in that final chorus, but I guess he's saying, baby, throw me off. What, throw him off the top? Is he playing King of the Mountain? Whatever. I dig this track. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Piece of Your Action, written by Nikki Six and Vince Neal. and Mike, let's have it. This is just a motley classic. Simple but cool riff from, from Mick again. Um, mid-tempo. I like there's there's this little weird noise in there. It's like <laughs> and then, and then chug, like chug. What, what's chug. it like? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I was asking my wife today, how do I spell this? She'll spell what? And I went, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably what you called me an idiot. Um, but the but it's each it's, I guess you'd say progressive. <laughs> it, it's it's like descending in tone. Yeah, it's like he's walking it down the neck, but I, I I think it's cool as hell. Yeah, um, his solo features some slide work, which he will feature the rest of his the rest of his career. Pretty he, much, yeah. He really uses the slide a lot. Um, the the sustained note, and then that repetitive but melodic lead driven riff as the band drops out, and then he winds up, which you kind of hear like foreshadowing of Kickstart My Heart the way he winds it up at the beginning. Yep. Um, and then into a Vince Neil yodel. And then back to the song. Um, Tommy, for me, Tommy's drum, drums shine on this for me. I love at the end after the solo, everything is punctuated with drums. I just picture him going side to side, just like bam, bam, Arms bam. all over the place. Yeah, just like, yeah. Yeah. you know, he's like 6'3", 40 pounds. Yeah. Just like, 
<laughs> you know, and I've <laughs> always yes, yeah, exactly. And I've always loved this song. Yeah. Well, lyrically, it's a sex song. I'm guessing Vince must have had a hand with the lyrics. He's looking for some down and dirty action, including some implied anal sex, tight action, rear traction. <laughs> There's no subtlety, and the melodies really aren't that stellar, but Vince sure sounds like he's excited about it. I dig Tommy's fills that transition the verses to the choruses, and he's still bringing the energy. He's a standout in this song, like you said. But Mick Mars owns this motherfucker. The riff is dirty and nasty. His guitar tone is perfect for the subject matter of the song. And he gets an extended solo that slides all over the place and takes its time with the buildup. He pushes it further and further until he speeds up towards the end of the solo. And then finally, the rest of the music drops out and it's just the guitar. Mick stands alone. I love that shit. How did that go? And then Vince's ear-piercing scream, followed by a last long slide, you know, the kickstart my heart thing, pulls the track back into the final verse. This is a fan favorite and badass tune that perfectly kicks off side two. <laughs> the next track is Starry Eyes, written by Nikki Six. Mike, your thoughts. All right. So we got a ballad. And for me, uh, this is where we get into the album's strongest point for me. And it's the sequencing. After the clusterfuck that was merry-go-round, everything out, this album is just building back uphill for me. And it's 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 awesome. So we've got a ballad, um, open chords that never sounded so cool. Starts with the clap. Not catching the clap, although <laughs> they may have. But it starts with the clap. <laughs> and then the gong. And then you got a mid-tempo riff. Vince's delivery of the riff is cool, but what makes it for me is the space in that riff because Tommy and Nikki keep thudding away the whole time, and it's actually Mick's guitar that leaves the space. They never stop when Mick stops. They just keep thudding through the whole thing. There's some cool cymbal work into the solo, which is one of the better solos on the album. Mick can play. He's not a flashy player. He's never been a flashy player, but he's got some cool bending of the notes as he walks the neck back for a chorus and then out on not the first, but the second solo. And I love how you can hear mixed finger chirps on the neck. And I don't know if that's the right term, but you can actually hear his hand moving on the yes. neck. And it's just, it's the sloppiness of that. that. That's one of the key things I love about this record. Such a great song. Yeah. So it starts with Tommy's drum beat, which is something he would also do in future albums and songs. It leads to a riff that has a different vibe than anything else on the album. There's a forlorn quality to it that almost makes it feel like a ballad, even though I guess technically it isn't. There's space in the verses that really lets you hear Vince's vocals. We were saying that. And you can understand him. He's not screeching or shouting. I really dig the chorus with a whoa. It's very sing-along. The guitar doesn't do any complicated riffing. The tune is sort of minimalist. But it switches up in the breakdown. And the tempo gets slightly faster. And Nikki does a sort of walking bass that actually works pretty well. Nikki six. All right. 
Mick again brings it on the first solo. It's very melodic and has the proper feel. Then at the end of the track, he plays a second solo higher up the neck, and it sounds like the guitar is crying for the girl in the lyrics. Speaking of the lyrics, they're about a guy breaking up with his girl and missing her as much as a friend as a lover. I love the change of pace this track brings to the record, and I've always dug this song. The penultimate track is the title track, Too Fast for Love, written by Nikki Six. Rockin' Mike, you like this one? Oh my god, yeah. that riff is awesome. Yeah. You know, so the original Leather Records version had a weird intro that Electra chopped off. This decision I completely agree with yes. because it's such a better way to start this song. And back when I got that Columbia Records uh, version of Too Fast for Love, they never took the lyrics that are in the intro out. So when I was following along, there was always the lyrics to the intro on the inside. And I'm like, what, what is that? What? <laughs> Where is that from? And it wasn't until I heard the original Leather Mix that I, ah, this makes all the sense ah, yeah. in the world. And I see why they cut it out. It's just a cool way to, to, to start the song. Now, Nikki has stated that this riff is basically Up the Creek by Cheap Trick played backwards. Hmm. He's also stated that this was the first song he learned to play. Now, according to Wiki, so it's a big caveat there. Um, the only problem is that Cheap Trick didn't release that song until 1984. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I don't know. I've heard him say multiple times that this is a Cheap Trick riff played backwards. Okay. Supposedly he's told Rick Nielsen that this is a Cheap Trick riff played backwards. Um, which <laughs> And Rick went, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. And sure, Nicky. Yep, yeah, yeah, uh, whatever. Um, but you know, they they did share pr- producers. Tom Worman, who yep. produced Dream Police, would later go on and produce their three of their biggest of Motley's biggest albums. Yep. And um, so he he's admitted numerous times it's a cheap trick riff. He may have forgotten which song, um, but it doesn't matter because it's cool as hell. The track has everything on it that you need. Cool riff, ripped off or not, it's still cool. Ba- you got a bass run from Nikki. You got gang background vocals. You got some stop and go rhythm where the band stops for the riff. And even Tommy's phasey drums are cool. This is just one of the best songs on the album. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm with you. I don't care for that original intro on the leather version. I could see, you know, like an old school fan who really loves the leather version say, what the fuck did you do? But for me, no, I like the Electra version. This has got that cool, fast main riff. Tommy really drives the song, pushing it forward. The chorus has a nice descending line that even Nikki follows along with the bass, while the title is shouted by the gang vocals, more or less. And it's another sing-along section. It's what the crew have always done with the choruses their whole career. Like Livewire, this doesn't really have a solo. It's designed to hit you in the mouth and get out. Though towards the end, there's a start and stop section where Mick and Tommy get to throw in some fills. The lyrics seem to be about a woman who's only looking for sex. She's not interested in love or a relationship. She's too fast for that shit. She could be a porno star, maybe. Vince's vocals on the pre-chorus reach up into his higher register, but he doesn't quite overdo it. It works. 
I always love this track, and I'd love it if they'd pull this track out again live, but I don't know if Vince could sing it now. I very much doubt he could. Uh, I, I saw him on the Carnival of Sins tour, and they pulled it out. Nice. So, but you're talking, that was, ah, shit, what? that was... Yeah, yeah, forget it. Yeah, that was, that was pretty good. That was yeah. better than Vince. That was much better than Vince. The, um, but that was even the Carnival of Sins tour when they got back together. That was 14 years ago. Yeah, jeez. And that brings us to the final track, On With The Show, written by Nikki Six and Vince Neal. Rock and Mike, how about the last one? Oh, this is great. More power pop, mournful and reflective in the verses, but the chorus shows that there's hope. It doesn't completely hit you over the head. It's a sad story, um, and I always thought it was cool how Nicky used his own name as the troubled kid. Yes. You know, I listened to the song for years, and then when I finally found out his real name was Frank, it just, oh my God, like it was like a, an epiphany It opens the song up for you. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, it does. It really does. Now, unfortunately... As much as I enjoyed the dirt, if people see the dirt, it's going to take it away. Yeah. You know, you don't have that aha moment. Yes. Um, so I, I feel kind of lucky in that respect. I think this is one of Vince's best vocal performances of his entire career. It's, he just, he hits it. The song is made for him and it's a cool riff from Mick. This is a top five Motley song for me in their entire catalog. And this is a great way to end the album. The opening riff gives the impression that we might be getting a ballad. It's slower and less aggressive. But as the song kicks in, it turns into heavy mid-tempo verses and faster, more propulsive choruses. Mick gets a couple of chances in the breaks to shine on the solos, and he does, mixing in melodic and faster shreddy runs. And he's the MVP on this album for me without question. Yep. Tommy double times the beat at the end of the track, and you get a sense of having taken a journey. The song continually builds faster tempos and gives a final release of tension before finishing. The lyrics tell the story of Frankie, who lived hard and fast, became a rock star, then was stabbed to death, and as he lays dying, he tells his girlfriend, or his friend, I don't know, Susie, to carry on without him. It's also a metaphor for Nicky Six himself, the former Frank Ferrana Jr. casting off his painful past and emerging with a new identity and persona. He'll continue on, but he's not the same boy he was. He needs to kill the past to become the man he wants to be. Vince brings some surprising subtlety to the vocals. He doesn't just bark them out, and I'm with you, Mike. This is my favorite performance from him on the album. This Actually, he is... A standout. Mm -hmm. This one, this one, Vince owns this song. Yep. I love this track too, and this one had to be the closer. It would be awkward sequenced anywhere else. Agreed. Now the track by track is over. We'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which shares the same fate as a Motley Crue non-touring contract. Rock and Mike, what are your final thoughts on Too Fast for Love? So this is not the greatest album, technically. It, it's not even their greatest album, but it is a five for me. 
this album influenced me in, in how I listen to everything as far as attitude. Every time we cover an, an, an album from this genre or anything that gets, even if it's improperly labeled as this genre, um, I'm filtering it through Too Fast for Love. I, I, I'm listening to see if, they're, if the band is hungry. I'm listening to see if they're grimy. I'm listening to see how they, how they filter that. Motley was hungry on this album. They're still hungry. You know, now you listen to the, the couple songs that they put out on the dirt. It's just watered down corporate rap. Yep. It's so awful. And you listen to this album and you're like, oh my God, you had the world by the balls. You didn't have the talent, but you had the world by the balls and you were going to say, you're going to listen to us. You're going to fucking like it and you're going to take it and you're going to come back for more. This is an album. This is a five for me easily and it will. It always will be. Outstanding. Motley Crue was formed on January 17, 1981 by bassist Nicky Six, fresh from the band London, and drummer Tommy Lee, along with vocalist-guitarist Greg Leon. Leon was replaced by Bob Deal, known as Mick Mars, after answering Mick's ad in the recycler paper that said, Loud, rude, and aggressive guitar player available. Tommy suggested his old high school acquaintance Vince Neil for the vocalist spot, and after initially refusing the offer, Vince joined the band on April 1st, 1981, and they played their first gig at the Starwood Nightclub in Hollywood, California on April 24th. The band didn't yet have a name, so Mick suggested Motley Crue and modified the spelling, and shortly after, the band met its first manager, Alan Kaufman. The crew recorded its first single, Stick to Your Guns, with Toast of the Town, which was released on their own Leather Records label with a pressing and distribution deal with Green World Distribution in Torrance, California. Then in November of 81, the self-produced first album, Too Fast for Love, originally mixed by later famed producer Michael Wagner, was released on the Leather label and sold 20,000 copies. Motley had gained a large following in the Los Angeles rock scene by that time, gaining notoriety for its onstage and offstage antics, and their manager Kaufman used this success to negotiate a deal with major label Elektra Records in early 1982. Too Fast for Love was then remixed by producer Roy Thomas Baker and re-released on August 20th, 1982, and that version of the album is the one still officially used today. I love this record. It reveals, like you said, Mike, a young, hungry band with a raw sound that even the Electra version with its production tricks can't cover up. The songwriting is based on the riffs and stylized, dark, street lyrics, and that formula would serve the crew throughout their career. The ingredients are all here for the massive success the band would achieve in years to come, and though the band would improve its chops and production values, for my money, Mick Mars never had a better guitar tone than he does right here on the first album. I give Too Fast for Love a four, and as the story of Motley Crue was just getting started, no one had any idea of the roller coaster ride to come. Hang on, folks. We got a Facebook review. It comes to us from our friend and guest co-pilot, Curtis Longclaw, and it says, In 2018, I discovered this podcast when looking for listening material to make a trip from Atlanta to Orlando go by faster. I was pleased to find episodes dedicated to several albums to which I have listened over the years. As the main host, Aaron really does his homework for every episode, and the co-hosts like his sister Shannon, Ray Zimmer, and Mike Cordes always have good chemistry with him and share valuable insight of their own. Aaron even had me on as a guest co-pilot a couple of times, which was a lot of fun. If I had to choose two words to describe this podcast, they would be concise and entertaining. Keep rocking, guys. 
Thank you so much, Curtis. We will see you again, my friend. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Let us know and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Mike. See ya. Come on, I don't how. Vicky's, he's not, he doesn't sing any vocals on this, Vicky? That's what they claim. I just checked my record, just says Nikki Six Bass. Bass, yep. I don't know. Yeah, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how they, I don't know how they did the, uh, like who was doing background vocals. Well, I mean, it's, it says Mick and Tommy, Tommy but, but, come on. Mick? Mick. <laughs> too fast, too fast, <laughs> I just trying to picture him doing the like live wire. He's like, he's like you know, he's like a black black haired cousin. It with that with that freaking hair. Well, he kind of look. He kind of looks like the Dollar General version of Blackie Lawless. <laughs> 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 we should put that in the episode. <laughs> uh, oh, you might have to use that again later. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Make sure that high is that high pitch Mick. <laughs> <laughs> Come on and dance. Come on and dance. Come the fuck on and dance. <laughs> Actually, I forgot to do this on the first track, so I'm just gonna do this right now. Okay. Rock and Mike, what do you think about this? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. You just started talking. I didn't catch it. I forgot. I mean, I just, I just, I no, I paused. And then you started talking. And like, <laughs> the thing is that you said, I gotta cover this. And I almost started talking again. I'm like, wait, wait a minute, I already covered this part. <laughs> Alright, let me get back into this. <clears throat> I wanna be. Nikki, I want to <laughs> Yeah, poor Nikki six. Yeah, poor Nikki six.